Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Welcome to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I am your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with Noah Rubin. He is uh, one of the best juniors to ever come out of the States. Junior Wimby champion, 2014. ACC and freshman of the year at Wake Forest. Top 125 in the world. Uh, tennis entrepreneur <laughs> and thought leader, quite frankly, as to what we can do better across all levels. Please welcome to the show, Nora Rubin. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to see you. So I insulted you because, <laughs> well, well, you know, I'm from a cold weather state. And so I get it, right? But I was, I, when I think about you, I associate you with California, LA, Carson, UCLA. And I'm sorry I offended you. Yeah, that was, that was a tough one to start this off with. I'm going to be honest, you know. <laughs> For any of my close friends is, you know, from New York or that have spent some time in New York with me, they know that that is like the worst possible thing you could say to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the all the way on the other side where most Californians never step into because they are absolutely petrified of it. But New York, one and only and then never leaving. Well, I think one of the things that scares, let's say, Californians or anybody from New York is, number one, you got to play indoors the whole time. Yep. Number two, there's not a lot of places to play. Number three, when you find a place, there's a hundred bucks an hour to rent a court. <laughs> and number four, it takes an hour and a half to drive to practice for two hours and an hour and a half back. So it takes a nice, easy, leisurely drive to Carson. Compare that to driving to sports time or, you know, flushing. And you're like, no, nah, I don't want any parts of this. So given all those challenges, how did you make? it in a cold weather climate especially in new york city where the courts are not plentiful yeah it's funny because all four of those i've had to deal with at one point in my career or another but it, it's so worth it you know there's something i think you know when i was when i was younger uh i was fortunate enough to you know with my with my mom and dad you know they wanted me to be close to home which was super important for me to kind of be a part of a little bit more of a normal lifestyle than you know some of these other kids were having um and it doesn't mean that i didn't use usca in florida to go down and that was at everett at the time and and to you know have that help um with training and travel and everything else that comes with it but you know, my, my parents wanted me to be cultured. We were going to museums, we were going to shows and, and we were doing everything. And, you know, we felt like we had a really great team surrounding uh, with my father helping me out with Lawrence Klager out of the sport time clubs at the time that are now uh, John McEnroe Tennis Academy. So, you know, for me, it was if I lost that feeling, that camaraderie that I had in New York, I think that was going to be a problem for my early development as a junior. And luckily had, you know, my dad who grinded it out to make sure that New York was a possibility, even though it is 
so tough. It really is. I mean, you know, I'm the first one to say it. It, it for especially tennis. It's, it's truly almost impossible to do what I did. There's ways and it's kind of molding now and developing into a pathway, but it was really tough when I was younger. So, cause you know, I, I had a conversation with like kids in Chicago, right? So we get, you know, obviously, you know, the juniors, you drive here, you drive there, we go to this group, we chase this coach. And I always say, if you, if you put the hour and a half that you spend in traffic on the court, that's close to your house, as long as the training is decent, right? right? right. So you got an hour and a half there, hour and a half back, or even, even two hours. If you took those two hours of travel time, put it on the court with the two hours close to your house. Now you got four hours. Even if the coaching is 75% of what you were trying to drive to get, you're probably going to end up further. So how, when you add your travel time from like Long Island to the sports time, when you add your travel time, how long of a day does it become? Because you're driving an hour and a half to play two hours, drive an hour and a half home. Yeah, no, those those longer drives really started taking place a little bit later in my junior career. Uh, when I was younger, I was super, we were super, super fortunate with the group of players that I grew up with. Um, on Long Island, there was actually a couple sports time clubs on Long Island that had incredible talent. Some of the best kids in the country, five to six, seven years older than me. So I was very fortunate that it was maybe at the worst, a half hour, 35 minute drive there. Um, sometimes in traffic, of course, there's never not going to be traffic, but, uh, yeah, it was when I was hitting 15 years old, when I was starting to play more ITF, some even futures at the time that I, that, and Randall's Island was starting to develop as a John McEnroe tennis Academy that we started seeing those hour, hour and a, hour and a few rides. And yeah, I mean, it was difficult, um, becomes a necessity you know you start putting it on on a simple balance and it's like hey is it worth it to be in new york still and then get this time and and i think at that point i was traveling so much that you know when i was home i was kind of biting the bullet it was exhausting when i was done with the day i was like oh, this it's been a long day you know i yeah i was at that point i was online school but you know, I, I knew for the most part that I wanted to go to college. So I knew I had to finish. This wasn't going to be something that I just put to the side. So I'm doing hours of school training, um, but, you know, hopefully making it a little bit earlier in the day. So when I got home, it wasn't, you know, nine, 10 o'clock at night. I had some time to relax. So it's all about managing time. And I got very good at that. But New York is, yeah, it's, it's definitely tricky. But when I knew that I had my weekends and I could do whatever I wanted, and I had the world at my disposal, it made it worth it. So let me ask you this, because one of the things we talk about travel time is the time in the car with the parents, right? Because as a tennis player, I think that's one of the things you remember most hmm. coming up is the fact that you do spend a lot of time with your parent, either on the plane or in the car. And when it's a bad day on the court, that <laughs> long drive seems super long. How was your relationship or what was that like spending so much time in the car with your parents? Was it like crazy tennis parent? Was it like form, you know, formative years? Like describe that yeah no i had i had a few different ones i had a few times where i had even taxis that were taking me which were interesting and i got to know kind of this driver that i you know had that we were you know putting every last dollar into and had some help i had my mom who uh you know did a lot of driving and you know she was as much as she knew about tennis because you know my sister and i played and she was a part of it you know she wasn't the tennis parent in the relationship you know so that was my father who coached me and then yeah i had my dad who you know as much as he was a a tennis parent and we did hours and hours together and um you know 
and was strict at times, believe me, but he was strict in the right way, you know, looking back, <laughs> you know, maybe when I was 10 years old and I got those, you know, the finger to come over here and, you know, got a little bit of that. It was, it was attitude. It was effort. It was never, you know, you lost two and two today. You know, we have to talk about that. Or you were on the bottom court and up and down King of the court games. It was, no, you look like an idiot out there. Your head's down and you're not trying like, well, what are we doing out here? So as much as that was a part of it, you know, he still worked extremely hard to make sure that I knew, um, you know, if I'm not enjoying it, let's stop and, you know, tell me what's actually going on here. Uh, so the car rides for the most part were fine during it. Yeah, it was tricky. You know, we had, I had Lawrence Klager who was on me since I was, you know, seven and, and he's kind of the magician, you know, in, in the country, but especially in New York, Tennessee, he's, he's very well known here. And, you know, had those guys on me, on my back. Lawrence was another one who drove me to and from practice. So dealt with a lot of different emotions and going forward. So matured me very, very young. And I knew to take every practice with a grain of salt, but it was, it was a long process. <laughs> so at what point did you begin to travel to Florida, right? Because you start to, you know, analyze the time on Corpus, time in the car. And, you know, we always, one of the things I, I like, or I always like try to shed light on is that a lot of great American champions came from cold weather climates. A lot of them didn't like, weren't born in Florida and living in Florida. You got like D.Y., you got James Blake, you got yourself, you got Jack Sox. I mean, you got guys that like Andy Roddick, you know what I mean? You got guys that did not, were not born in Florida, Yeah. right? And sort of got good in a cold weather climate and then sort of migrated when they were already good. So yeah. at what point did you make that shift where you start moving to Florida and spending more time in LA and that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, the real move didn't really happen until my professional career. You know, I, I don't remember the first time that I was invited or actually, you know, went over to Florida for a small training camp, probably was around 10 or 11 years old, even, you know, I maybe even nine and I would go there for a few days or a week. And, you know, there was a lot of different personalities, not only with the coaches, but the players. It was something that I wasn't accustomed to. Uh, so kind of when I was going back to my dad, I was like, ah, I'm not sure if this is for me. You know, this is a lot to deal with. You know, we had back in the, I mean, those were like the Tykwikowski and Luca Corintelli and all these guys that were like training full time with USTA and Tommy Paul. And they were just, I mean, they're, they'll be the first ones to say it. They were out of their mind. You know, this wow. was, yeah, they were wild. I mean, this is, imagine young kids put in a spot, basically what they considered jail to some extent, you know, of you can't leave this location. I mean, it's a lot of, you know, pent up, you know, minor testosterone that they have and just trying to do the craziest stuff in the world. So it, it was a lot. And for me, it was not something that um, I could do for extended periods of time, but I got used to it. And, you know, obviously I started to travel with them You know, I played Coupe LeBlanc, which was this tournament in, in Canada when I was uh, 11, 12 and then La Petite Asse. So I was obviously traveling with them. And then ITFs as well. So I had to get to know these. I, I loved a lot of the coaches there. Had some amazing memories with, you know, Michael Sell, Nico Tadero, and, and Ken Kinnear. These are all the guys that I traveled with, you know, when I was younger, even Catherine Rinaldi. So it's, you know, it was, it was a lot of great memories. But at the time, to be full-time there or even a couple of weeks at a time, you know, those were not the players I wanted to be spending, uh, you know, hours, hours, hours a day with. Now I'm friends with a lot of them, you know, <laughs> but it was a different time back then. 
Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. So what would you say, right? Because I look at your story and like, you know, it's one thing to go through the process and it's one thing, you know, to be like yourself, who I consider to be a very cerebral person. So you get a parent that lives up East Coast or Chicago or, you know, whatever, Seattle. When should they consider moving? Like if you had to say, all your parents always ask me, do you advise moving to an academy, right? A Florida academy, right? I was like, mm, you know what I mean? What, what would be your response to a parent that said, you did it all, you've been through it, when or should I move at all? Yeah, I mean, I think this, uh, it's really difficult. I mean, tennis is such a specific sport, so personal with your relationship with your coach. You know, everybody says, well, your coach hasn't been there. You know, I remember uh, Emma Raducanu, you know, basically, I mean, she fired a coach after she, you know, won the Open. I was like, well, that coach has now won the Open. You know, it, you know, for you, for you to say that the coach hasn't experienced it, well, now they just did, you know. So it's, it really is a matter of all personal situations and for you to say that, you know, the coach maybe doesn't have what I need. Okay, if you're feeling that, maybe you take a step outside and you say, let's see what some of these others look like. But I think you have to kind of consult with somebody that's been there to look at your full situation and say, hey, what do we have? Do we have the fitness? Do we have the team set up? Do we have enough hours in the day to make sure you're practicing? Do we have the court time? You know, you kind of look at the full picture, but for a lot of players, I think they make the move far too quickly than, you know, and, and, and few, fewer of them are, are far too reserved. So I think when I've looked at it in the past, they're like, well, my kid is five years old. Should we just start checking out academies? And I'm like, your kid can't even tie a shoe. Like, let's take a second here. You know, let's, let's look at where this development's going to take him, but he has a lot of time, you know, and especially with school. Cause I think that's kind of the largest component of it. When should I go and take online classes? When should my child, you know, start looking into Laurel Springs, you know? And I'm like, I, you got a few years, you know, you can really do what you want. I, 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 think my year was around the perfect year freshman year of high school 15 years old ready to take on a few more uh professional tournaments kind of weaning out of itfs but again i was kind of at that top 0.01 percent of the time i think a lot of other kids can even last another year or two in school um but we all know that every parent as much as they're loving thinks their child is the next best tennis player and it's a very tough conversation to have with a lot of them so would you say don't consider moving until you are top 50 USTA, top 150 ITF, right? Or I think it's lower than that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even think those numbers are equating. Like when I when you say move academy wise, like in my head, the only thought that's like I think you could be an incredible, incredible college tennis player with chances to get and, and make possible moves in the pros. With staying home for the most part, I really do believe that. I think you can have a week or two here throughout the year that you go somewhere else. But to say to move an academy um, is really the only thought there is that, hey, my son or daughter has the real chance to make waves as a professional tennis player. 
which <laughs> sorry to say, but chances are your son or daughter doesn't have that chance. And, uh, when I've spoken, you know, when I look at every conversation I've had with parents, you know, there's not many of them that I really do believe have that chance. I mean, this is a, we're talking about one of the most competitive sports, you know, in the world. So for them to say, Hey, we're going to up, you know, uproot our lives and, and spend all this money and make sure that they have all the chances in the world, you know, it's okay. You know, if, if the, if the financials are there, but you know, if they're really trying to sacrifice for it, I'd rather be in the conservative side. I really would. So talk about juniors and talk about knowing when is the right time. You want Wimbledon juniors. Yes. And the win at junior slam is like a dream for most. And the win to me, the Holy grail of tennis is women. Right. That is just like our sort of most prestigious title, even though it's probably not the, you know, it's not New York, it's not US Open. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean the same thing, ironically, when you to Madison Avenue, right? You win the US Open, that's like the Super Bowl. And that <laughs> means more for endorsement dollars right. in the state than Wimbledon does, even though Wimbledon is the most prestigious. So tell me how your life changed once you won Junior Wimby. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't think a lot of people understood um, how my junior and professional career ebbed and flowed like through my last two or three years. I actually reached my career high ITF ranking, which is for anybody that doesn't know is 18 and under in the world. I reached that career high ranking when I was 15 years old. So I was six in the world a month before my 16th birthday. And at that point I said, I'm done with juniors. You know, I kind of got out what I thought I could, you know, could I have fought for the number one spot? Sure. It wasn't really, you know, something on my list at that time. Uh, we kind of moved to professional tournaments. I qualified for my first professional tournament uh, a month before my 15th birthday. You know, that's kind of where my career was, was, was going. So, you know, I actually had even, I don't know, two years off, you know, without playing an ITF event, you know, I may have played one or two here and there, but I had about two years off until I played junior Wimbledon again. And um, it's one of the few things I give John McEnroe credit for, because uh, he hasn't had too much of a hand in my career, to be honest with you. But he said, hey, you know, for for us, for our club, for you, you know, play your last year, which I was already 550 in the world ATP, play the last two grand slams, junior grand slams before you age out. You know, it's something that you're never going to have the chance to do again. You know, hopefully you'll play professional ones, but you won't have uh, junior grand slams. And it's something very unique and different. I said, Okay, you know, there was this rule that was started, you know, uh, to it's called a professional exempt that allowed your professional ranking to get you in. I missed the main draw exempt by like 50 spots. So I had to play qualifying. Um, I qualified for the French Open, lost third round to Quinton Halise, who's around 100 in the world right now. And he was another professional exempt. And then I turned to my dad. I'm like, I'm tired. Like, well, I don't need to be doing this again. Like, well, you know, it was great. It was fun, but I didn't do that well. And, and Fred and clay was my best surface at that time. So here I was, I was like, I really thought I had a chance to do something and, you know, didn't even get to the quarters. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I talk, and I'm talking, we're sitting, my dad's like, you know what, we'll do this one a little bit differently. Let's just go down to, you know, Wimby. let's go down to London, you know, just a day before. We'll get there. We'll have fun. We'll make a trip out of it. Really make it a vacation to celebrate everything you've done as a junior. It will kind of be an end. Get down there. 
less than 24 hours before my first round qualifying match. And for those who don't know, it's actually not on site at Wimbledon. This is still, this is at Roehampton university. So you feel like you're playing, even though it's on grass, you feel like you're playing some random yeah. club tournament, which is again, the same for uh, qualifying of men's as well. Um, was down a set point in final round qualifying. I'm look, turning over. I'm like, what are we doing here? You know, why did we come so far? And I blink my eyes and I'm in the finals against Stefan Kozlov. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. I guess, I guess this week turned out. Okay. Right. I mean, I guess it's fine. And, you know, to obviously win that tournament, to win that week, play all the Americans, you know, playing Tiafo, Fritz, Kozlov, you know, again, it was, I said this many times, it was less for me, more for my father. He sacrificed so much for him to have that week and to be there. You know, he still cries about it, you know, no matter what I did almost in professional tennis, which he was always so proud of, you know, that moment for him kind of was the holy grail of everything we sacrifice as a junior. So it, it was, it meant so much for me to kind of have that for him and for him to be at the opera hall with Djokovic at that time. And it was the first time I saw my father intoxicated, never saw him drunk before. And he's downing champagne glasses, but, uh, it was a, a great transition that then led into Kalamazoo, which was a crazy summer winning singles and doubles there. And uh, I know so much. It was, a, it was a crazy two months. And in between those two months, deciding to take, uh, take my talents to Wake Forest University, as the, the basketball players say. But uh, yeah, what a, what a whirlwind. So let me ask you this. I feel like junior slam champions girls champions right equate are a better indicator for professional women's careers right they're sort of a line right you look at Anj Jabor one junior Wimby top 10 in the world you look at Iga right you look at you can look at the women who are the girls who won junior slams yeah and they have top 40 careers yeah right on the men's side, doesn't necessarily translate. No. Right? And why do you think that is? You know, I think you could just go to, you know, kind of genetics. I mean, you know, females mature a little bit earlier on in their, you know, careers. So when junior slams come around, I think a lot of the guys are still boys, you know, and I think a lot of these girls are, are becoming, you know, women in a sense. And for them, it's easily translating into uh, women's tennis. And I think there's just a lot more separation in the physicality between the best men players in the, you know, the best players in the world, but, you know, besides the best junior boys, you know, in the world, I think there's a large disparity there with the women. There's definitely a learning curve and, and it takes some time, but I think that's a little bit closer. I, I really do. When I've seen the women play uh, their finals they just look more mature than the boys. They look like they're holding themselves to a, to a higher level. They even look more professional at times. And the guys are like, oh, they're super talented, but a lot of them are skinny. And a lot of them, you know, haven't really put on all their muscle yet. And you see them and it's like, oh, they have, they have some ways to go. So I remember um, getting pissed after winning this Futures match when I was like 18. And I was like, ah, oh, the guy wasn't that great. Like, I didn't feel that good. And my coach got off uh at the time it was actually Tadero, and he said that guy was one in the world like four years ago in juniors you know and and for me the guy never broke into the top 800 in the world 
Right. You know, so it, it was one of those disparities. And you look at this and you're like, how can that be? And, you know, you had some good players. I mean, when I was growing, when I was right before my age, it was um, Luke Seville was playing and, and, you know, he was winning every other slam and uh, John Luigi Quincy was winning all these slams. And you had these guys that are just, um, just was in basically every final Philippe Pelliwu was, was the second, he won three slams in a year. I mean, he had one of the better junior careers that we've seen since Donald Young or Gael Manfi. And yeah, I mean, they were good, you know, they were, they were good tennis players, but are, are we saying that they made waves at in the professional world? I mean, not what we expected. I mean, even me, I was at one of the higher percentage and I still, I mean, haven't broken into the top hundred, you know, and, and may never. So it's funny to see that on the men's side compared to the women that, you know, the year that I wanted was Ostapenko, you know, and she made quick waves on the, on the woman's side, you know, when yeah. I went maybe it was her. And then, you know, you blink a year or two years later and she's, she's, you know, 30 in the world, you know, so it, it was a funny transition. Yeah. That's why I was, when you think about the, the junior slams and how they, what they mean, yeah. right? And like in the men's, it's like almost like a curse, not a curse, <laughs> but in some never, way. yeah, <laughs> you, know, you hate to call, Junior Wimbledon title occurs, right? You know what I mean? But it's kind of like, it just doesn't mean, and when I say that to a layman, right? You know what I mean? They were like, oh, you know, it's not that. Like you talk to a basketball guy, you say player of the year in college, they're going to have a decent career in the NBA. You know what I mean? Where well, it, it used to mean that. Now it's like, you got to come right out of high school or spend one year. If you stay four years, then you suck, right? An <laughs> NBA. If you stay four years in college, you're probably not going to be a good basketball, you know, good right. NBA day one and done then you so it, it's it, the, the sport is evolving and I sort of struggle to like just sort of say why does a women's junior slam you know mirror their pro career versus a man and I always say it's just physicality growth height strength you know what I mean it's all the things where women do sort of like develop and become a woman right at 16 17 18 right their bodies aren't that much different Right. You know, if they're if they're committed to fitness and they're in shape and they're like consistent with their stuff, they kind of can look the same at 18 as they do at 22. 100 percent 100 percent You know what I mean? So so let me ask you this. Do you think so? You you decide to go to the Wake Forest, right? At a time where you won the zoo, wild cards US Open, right? One one within juniors. Do you I don't want to say was it a mistake or do you think? your career would have been better served by jumping straight to the pros? I do not at all. I really don't. I mean, do I think I would have got some nice quick cash, you know, and I knew that was on the table a hundred percent, you know, that was, it was tough enough. I remember my dad uh, in the U S open prize money office holding on to this check, like, and they're tearing it out of them. And they're like, we're going to take that one. And we're going to give you this one that has $1,900, which is what you can take for your $10,000 for the expenses, um, which we didn't know that you could go in and buy all the Adidas clothing in the world and count those expenses, but that's a story for another time. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was difficult. I mean, I remember the conversations had about A, going to school, B, picking Wake Forest over like a UVA who was number one in the country at the time, what that meant um, for you know loss of you know quick sponsorships. And no, I mean, the trajectory of my career uh, in those two years was perfect. I mean, literally nearly perfection. I mean, I would have loved to win NCAAs. It was a few points away, 
up a set 5-3, would have been great. Um, but for me, for my father, for my coach Lawrence at the time, we liked conquering every single division. We liked conquering every level of the sport because, you know, there are a lot of players that go pro and I'm like, have you played in college? It's fairly competitive. Like, do you know that you could beat the best players in college? And I needed to know that for myself. I needed to know that I can play against like what we're saying. A lot of the juniors are still boys. Can I play against some of these guys that are starting to look like men, you know, going in and possibly getting a fifth year at, at Baylor at the time who looks like he's 28 years old, you know, that has, you know, so can I go up against these guys and, and, and hold my own and, and take them down and, you know, it was, it was a good freshman year. I lost, you know, three matches that year. Um, you know, one of them, a 10 point tiebreaker. I lost in the finals NCAs, um, up a center break. So it was just like, I knew at that point I got out of college and I said, Hey, there's not much more I can take out of it. I feel like I am, I, which I, I was two in the country at the time. I feel like I'm a top five, uh, college tennis player. If not one, uh, let's, let's move, let's take it to the next step. And that's when I decided to go pro. And then after that, it moved very quickly in the next year before my first injury. But yeah, I mean, I don't regret it at all. If anything, I regret not staying an extra year. Mm. Yeah. Mm. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. So, it's funny, when I hear you say a set in the break, I was like, somebody's going to write a book called A Set in the Break. Because when you look at how many people's careers would be different, if they won matches where they were setting the break up, you know what I mean? I mean, just it's, imagine how many matches have you lost where you like, I was up a setting the break. I to, mean, to players that are top 50. Oh, 100%. Oh, I mean, I lost, <laughs> the last top 50, I was as Fognini was a setting the break. You know, it was just like I, I played. So I will say, in though, in that it was a month, no, I mean, yeah, a month and a half span. So from up a setting the break in, in the finals NCAs, I said I would never do that again obviously well next week i played Darren king in the finals of a future set five two i think that was double break so that we're gonna have to change the title there set and a few breaks up and then but i will say qualified for my first challenger was down six three five one match point against tommy paul and won that match so, you know, we look at it as a whole and that match got me into the Australian Open, which got me my first Grand Slam win. So you look at the trajectory of everything and uh, it's tough to say if I came out on top because the NCAAs is a wild card to the main draw. But then I got this wild card to Aussie and won a match, you know, so it, it works in mysterious ways. But I am if you want to write a book, center break, I'm, uh, I will co-author that with you. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about the Challenger Tour, right? And you look at somebody like yourself who has played every slam, been top 125, probably an advocate. You consider yourself an advocate for the 107, you know, everybody, 106, top 106 gets you directly into a slam. Right. Everybody else got a quality, right? And quality is tough. So, you know, you think about somebody 125 to 225 who are damn good tennis players. Yep. Right. But may not 
make as good of a living as an NBA player hmm. that's 125 to 225, right? Right. Or baseball player, right? What do you think we need to do to try to keep those people, not help them get top 100, but keep them in the game longer? Because sometimes all people need is more time. Right. And unfortunately, you don't have enough money to stay out there long enough to get that big break, right? To get that lucky draw, to get that withdrawal, to get that lucky loser. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's just yeah. time. So what do you think we can do to try to get some of those, to keep some of those people in the game longer? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think there's short-term effects that we could change that we're, we're seeing some changes with it. Um, you know, if you're, if you're just strictly talking people inside the top 250, um, I think it comes down to a little bit better distribution of prize money at the slams, which, you know, without really breaking down the slams, you know, they're already seeing to be the case. There, there are ways to make losing first round qualifying of a slam instead of what, a, you know, I think my first time I ever lost in qualifying, I think it was like around $5,000, you know, maybe even a little bit less. And now we're up to 12 or 15 at this point. So if we can get that number to 25K, which for a lot of people seems crazy, really isn't that crazy for slams with how much money they're making and bringing in, there is a lot of possibilities I think can happen. Um, with a few minor changes, then you're looking at players right off the bat making 100K, losing first round quads and slams. I think that's something that we can start with. And, you know, that's the only way without fundamental changes and foundation changes to tennis where people have a salary. You know, that, that you can consider that in, in a really bad sense because there's injuries and I've missed slams and everything else. In, in, in the poorest sense possible, that's your salary. Slams, get, get in there, get your cash and move on. You know, I was fortunate enough in my career to be at a weird challenger tour player where I did well at the slams. I did well at the higher levels. So, uh, you know, I qualified for a slam. I played main draw of a slam almost every year that I was, you know, in it and playing full years, which was, you know, great. I mean, that was how I funded, you know, years of on tour, but you know, at the same time, if you can make sure that they're having that base level, 100K, if they win a match or two at a slam, you know, you're looking at 150, maybe 175. And then that doesn't count every other tournament they're playing. And, you know, then we're seeing, you know, tremendous increases and seeing players actually be a part of something. But yeah, I mean, on the other side, I think, you know, tennis has a lot of changing to do in terms of getting people into the sport. You know, we look at, I think U S open is a great example. I would even go up to 75% of the people that attend the U S open are not tennis fans. They want to go to the festival. They want to drink. They want to have the great food and they want to just be there. They want to take Instagram pictures. And if we right. can make tennis a little bit more like that, which, you know, I'm not a tremendous baseball fan. No offense. To anybody is, you know, I, but I love going to a baseball game. Cause I want to have a hot dog. I want to have a beer. I want to, you know, sit with my friends and relax and have an enjoyable day at the ballpark. How American can you get, you know, but tennis doesn't really have that unless it's the U S open, unless it's some of these bigger events. So if we can make the smaller events feel like a, like an activity, like a, you know, a festival feel, I think that's where these revenue streams will grow, you know, exponentially, but you know, on just the lower ends, I think that's it. It's just a little bit of distribution here can be, can be life-changing at times. I just, you know, it's not going to be comparable to a golf, you know, to, to one of these other sports, but 
you know, we got to start somewhere. So perhaps you're proposing a salary, right? For guys 107 to 250. And then maybe it stops at 250 because below 250 is kind of, yeah, you know what I mean, right? So like if, if guys were given 30, 40 grand as a salary and then up first round quality prize money, then it's a decent living. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was, I, I spoke to ATP about this of, of a, whatever your year end ranking was on January 1st, you get a check from ATP, you know, and it, and it says, Hey, you were in this ranking bracket. Here's five grand. Here's 10 grand. Here's 20. And this was, this would be a little bit of an, you know, it could be go two ways. It could be an inverted scale where the lower rank players are getting more money for expenses, or it could be just, you know, how life works that you hit, one in the world, you know, you're, we're giving you a hundred thousand dollar check, you know, cause that's what you deserve. And if you're a hundred in the world, here's, here's 10 grand to start your year. You know, if I had five grand at the beginning of the year, just to give that cushion, because the, <laughs> the most expensive time is are always, always the beginning of the year, okay. you know, I'm booking my flights, you know, luckily we have Indian Wells, Miami in the States, you know, kind of post January, but the beginning is Australia for us, you know, we're, we're already, you know, if you're going with somebody, you're traveling with somebody, you're booking those flights, you know, pre-Christmas Hanukkah time, you're like, I hate my life. I right. hate my life. You know, I, I just put there down 25 grand. You know, I literally just spent 25 grand on hotels, flights for the next three months or whatever. That was always brutal. I always, that always hurt. So if I knew I had five grand just to kind of alleviate, you know, half of that pressure or whatever it might be, that, that would be a game changer. And I think there's definitely ways to do that. And then when you think about that pressure, how that shows up on the court. So you you, you spend 25, 30, because you got to go with somebody, right? You can't go to Australia yeah. by yourself. Got to go with somebody. That's two people, two flights, two hotel rooms. You know, we're big boys. We can't share a room. <laughs> no, and, right? And then you think about how you're on the court up a set in the break, right? Or even down a set in the break, right? Thinking about the, the pressure that the financial, it is. it really does sort of spiral and impact the encore. So let me ask you this, since we're talking about money. This can be like hard, right? And every now and again, you have to give yourself a reminder of why you are grinding, right? Because going to Rome, Georgia, Champagne, you know, some of these places, it's not, they're not sexy. Right. You're like, damn, it's worth it, right? <laughs> so when you've got your first big check, where you felt like you had your breathing room, Tell me about a purchase oh, that you made that you like, eh, damn, I shouldn't have done that. But I was just feeling like I needed a little carrot. I, I would say, I, fortunately enough, I didn't do any large enough purchases where I couldn't come back from them. Do I regret some of my purchases? A hundred percent, without a doubt. You know, I was not one of those players that I saw and which I, I did see a few of them, like you turn around, they're like, they have a new car. I'm like, good for you, man. Like that, that's a good effort. You know? And I wasn't there. Did I buy a few too many pairs of Ferragamo shoes? Maybe that point. Yeah. I mean, that definitely happened. I remember, um, a little bit later, not earlier, but a little bit later, uh, like French open, I got a Rolex, you know, like, did I need to be spending that much on, on a watch at that point? No, luckily they hold their value and I have sold it recently, but with that being said, yeah, you have to, you have to celebrate it. I mean, for me, food is like number one. So like if I can go to a restaurant, 
get a porterhouse for two with my girlfriend. Like that's, that's it. Like I'm, I'm very happy at that point. Um, good vacation, but yeah, I, you know, I, I definitely, I looked at my closet after I moved recently. I was like, gosh, I didn't wear, I like, I really, I've actually never put that pair of shoes on before. Right. They look nice in my closet, but I, I actually have not touched them. And uh, yeah, slightly embarrassing. But my now fiance is like, yeah, we're, we're going to work on that one. I was like, yeah, yeah. I, and you got to buy a bag every now and then. You spend so much time on the road. You go to Paris. You can't come back empty handed. Like Louis Vuitton store right there on the shops and you came back empty handed. You can't do that. No, you can't. Luckily, like the French Open, I was fortunate enough. They're sponsored by Louis Vuitton. So like we got a wallet that year. So like it does, it did cure a little bit of that, but um, yeah, uh, that was a tough one. Yeah, my luckily now fiance, but at the time girlfriend, she got a few presents that probably <laughs> realistically were not in my price range. But hey, we 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 were main draw French at that. What are we gonna do? You know? Yeah, you got to live a little bit. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one of a kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So you started this um, platform, like uh, Behind the Racket. Yes. Right? And I think it is, you know, I always talk about it with my family. Like, man, you know, you think it's, you think I'm over in Paris kicking it, right? You know what I mean? You think I'm just in Miami kicking it. And it's like work from the time you get up, going to breakfast, practice, massage, come back, scout, watch the opponent practice. You know what I mean? Fight for a practice court. Then go to dinner, right? Where you're talking about tennis and trying to do some coaching over dinner. It's like 24 hours, right? Um, and it's not the life most people think it is. So tell me about the thought behind creating it and what impact you think it's had. Yeah, it was actually ironically when I hit my career high ranking for about 125, that's when I dealt with like, that was like almost the worst time in my career. You know, I thought at that point, you know, you look at the ranking spots, you're like, I did a lot this year and I still need 200 ATP points, you know, or whatever. And I'm like, that's... To, to, to make it 99 in the world. And that was just a lot on me weighing. And I was like, I did so much. How much more do I have? And, you know, as many people know, I'm not, you know, acing anybody off the court here. I'm a five foot nine Jew that's running around the court. I mean, now, you know, it's a lot of effort every single match. You know, that's just what I'm doing. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I was dealing with anxiety and depression and how much more do I have? How do I, you know, I was going on the road and, you know, I was, I was on an eight match losing streak earlier that year in 2018. And just like, I can't do this. Like literally crying myself to sleep, losing and qualifying of challengers after, you know, winning main draw matches and slams after winning challenger titles. And I was like, what? you can lose to anybody in the world at any given point. But it was just the fact that I felt my career was going like this and then taking a plummet. And there wasn't much I can do because there's no stability. There really is just no stability. You have to keep winning in tennis and make sure you're there. And I thought there's no way I'm the only one dealing with this. Let me just talk to a few friends, see, open up to them a little bit, see what they're going through. And I had this thought of like, why should I not just record kind of these conversations um, to see what they have dealt with, um, not only in their own anxieties and tennis, but in their life and see how that has affected them, 
made them the person they are today. And, you know, I started with some of my closer friends with Ernesto Escobedo, Chris Eubanks, Bjorn Pertangelo, and talking to these guys, even, you know, on the woman's side, Jamie Lowe, Batley Kick, and seeing how all these experiences have molded them while also playing one of the most difficult sports in the world and had absolutely no idea what it would become. I had 400 followers in the first month and I'm like, okay, I don't know. What am I doing this for? But I just wanted to make sure that these stories were at least getting out there to a few people. And I turn around and I have 20,000 followers. I'm like, okay, wow. And I'm getting messages from people of these stories are are life-changing. I had no idea these people are going through this and I didn't even know. And it was therapeutic for myself as well. But um, yeah, I mean, once I, I think there was definitely a few stories that hit home to me with people that I was, that I thought I was super close with, and I didn't really know what was going on in their own lives. And, and they, you know, branched out. And then it was just a lot of conversations were flowing and it was super meaningful. And it's a responsibility that I have today that to, to push it forward. And we have a lot of cool projects coming up with it, but at the, at the heart of it, it's just bringing the fan closer to the player and, and allowing the players to share their stories the way they wanted to. So always uh, think about this, right? Who on tour, right? Do you look at him like, man, that dude's making a bunch of cash, top hundred in the world, and I used to tune him up every time I played him. <laughs> you know, because you, you look at tennis, it's all about matchups. The draw, I mean, it's all about matchups, right? You know, you look at people who win slams, and they oh, no, okay, they had four good matchups, and then right. just got hot, right? right? And that confidence just fueled them to maybe some potentially tougher matches who on tour you look at like oh man i used to bust his ass <laughs> um ooh, there's there's definitely a few that i would like you know that we were like neck and neck at like 120 in the world and i was taking him out like uh quarantine mute who you know is 50 in the world or dominic kopfer and these guys you know I'm, you know i was taking them out like you know three and three five and five like consistently i don't know if either of those have a win over me yet i think i'm three and oh with both of them or you know a tiafo who you know kind of had his breakthrough with me i gave two americans their top 100 win which absolutely <laughs> kills me absolutely kills me uh tiafo was stocked in we played in the finals of a 100k challenger and that one got him to like 97 in the world or something like that and um yeah that was absolutely brutal uh but have a winning record against him you know, beat Fritz in the finals of a challenger before he had his real big break. So, you know, when I've, I've done this before, when I'm really not in a good space and I probably should never do this because it's only depressing, <laughs> but it's, you know, you go through, you know, I went through the second round. I forgot what year it was like Aussie open last year or so I went through the second round and I beat over half of the players that were in that second round. You know, that's just how it is. You know, that's what we're getting to. So you know, I, I don't need any more um, confidence to say that I could be 50 in the world. I know I can be, you know, with the with the right team behind me and, and me feeling good and ready to play. It's just a matter of if, if I want to go through that or not. So, uh, yeah, it does sting a little bit for sure, but I do have some good wins over them. So I'll take it for now. They remember. I mean, players get top 25 in the world. And they're like, oh, man, I remember Noah Ruby used to like, no matter what my ranking is, <laughs> I Oh, I struggle against this dude. You know what I'm saying? Like people, players always have that. And I'm sure you got a person where it was like, you know, I was 125 in the world, but I would always lose to this person who was 300. Oh, I pull this one, Frank Dancevich. I don't know if that name rings a bell to you. This is a 
clean tennis player. I think went five with Federer or something strange like that. Was always, he got to about 50 in the world. And I was 0-7 with him. I just could not. I just did whatever I did. And in my head, he was like the perfect matchup for me too, which was the worst thing. I love playing one-handed backhands. I love guys that are just slicing and chipping um, and me kind of attacking and then, then getting that opportunity, but couldn't even get close to him until one day I beat him. And that literally lives in my memory forever. Nobody knows that, but it's kind of like one of those things where I'm like, I needed that for me to go to sleep. You know, if I didn't have a win over this guy, I, I would never sleep again. All right, so since you played at every level, slams all the way down to challenges, I, I got I got this last question for you. Favorite stop on the tour and a place you never have to go to ever again? Um, Non-slam. Favorite stop on tour that is not a slam. That's tough because it is considered a fifth slam. I'll give you one after this as well. Um, Indian Wells is just, it's so tough not to be happy you know, landing at the Palm Springs airport, you know, it's, there's something so peaceful. You get there. You, I go straight to Dick's sporting goods. I buy a new soccer ball. I play in the brand new grass they have there. There's something so special about being there. There really is. Um, taking Indian Wells out of that. Um, that's tough. I, I absolutely loved being in Geneva. That was one of my favorite stops that I ever was. Switzerland was absolutely amazing. And even in the U.S., I think, you know, some of the, a couple of challengers that I had uh, in Northern Cal, you know, we had a Tiburon challenger that was just like that incredible housing that I was staying with. And it was just always truly amazing. Um, you know, there's still a few places I haven't been. I haven't been to Rome and Monte Carlo yet. That, that is still top of my list. Uh, that might that might be enough motivation to me to get back on tour in the next couple of years, but <laughs> we'll see. And then um, places I don't have to go back to. Sadly, there's more than a few, but I will say <laughs> I, I did get uh, where I got, where I, where I qualified for my first professional tournament and where I got my first point. Brownsville, Texas, and Decatur, Illinois. Oh. This is absolutely, please don't take it personally, forever lives there right now. It is just happens to be one of those stops that, as you said, not as sexy as some of those other stops that we have. Yeah. So, yeah, that definitely goes on, on top of the list there. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it all builds character, right? The good and the bad, the, the, the sexy and the... A lot of so, stories. A lot yeah. of stories. So, man, I want to thank you for your time. I want to, um, you know, let you know, you obviously know you're a fan in the locker room. Everybody loves what you're doing. Uh, everybody, you know, at least they know they play you. They're in for a grind, right? Mm -hmm. And they got to show up, which is yep. the respect of a lot of players from 1 to 124. So I want to congratulate you uh, on that. And, man, you know, keep going, man. Good luck in married life. You know, I'm, I'm nine years in, so, you know, I can... <laughs> yes, if you have uh, any any words of wisdom i'll take them out but we're doing we're doing pretty good right now so i'm just enjoying it all right <laughs> all right this has been a tennis.com podcast with noah rubin thank you for listening <laughs>